This week's episode comes from some friends of mine over at the Crime Time Nerds. Now, back when I started this podcast, Nat and Ash were some of the first people that I talked to after I went live, and we've been friends ever since. Nat has been there through the ups and downs, and Ash as well. There's highs and lows, and I appreciate you guys wholeheartedly. Thank you for supporting me and the Jury Room Podcast. So make sure you go and like and subscribe and follow these guys. They have a great little podcast. They cover a lot of obscure cases, a lot of Vermont-based cases. They've, they've covered a lot. So definitely go show them some love. Leave them a review. They work really hard. And just show them some appreciation. Thank you. Now enjoy their content. And as always, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review for the Jury Room Podcast on any platform that you can. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Why, hello there, nerds. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat, and you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Welcome, nerdlings, to another episode of Crime Time Nerds. Today, we're going back into the archives of Vermont True Crime to discuss the murder of a local St. Albans school teacher by the name of Marietta Ball, a young woman who had the misfortune to cross paths with an early serial killer back in July of 1874. Yeah, I'm, I'm personally super, super interested by older crimes, and so cases like this fascinate me, especially cases that are back from like the 1800s or or early 1900s as I just, I find them so interesting. I'm intrigued by the way investigations into cases like this, just how they were done previous to things like DNA evidence, fingerprint analysis, blood evidence, criminal profiling, which nowadays any type of serial killer case would be heavily utilizing criminal profiling that didn't exist back then. Yeah, like these older crimes definitely laid the groundwork for modern investigation techniques Mm. and just everyday police work in general. Um, If we were to look back into the 70s, we had no information about police walking through crime scenes. It was just a normal thing that happened. Nowadays, we know that that's not the case. No one should be walking through a crime scene unless they're in full PPE. But yeah, they just really laid the groundwork to the things that we know today about investigation techniques. And these crimes were often solved just by a bunch, a bunch of research. And I mean, yeah, those suspects could be anywhere. Uh, We know today that a lot of serial killers actually like to be involved in the investigations. So it's super important that we know that information now from past crimes and that we really pay attention to those. And yet in some of the ways, the investigations, they really haven't changed that much. A lot of cases, they get solved by just old school detective work, you know, hitting that pavement. And 
that detective in question just trying to fit the pieces of the puzzle together. You know, oftentimes it's just one by one, one little thing over a time. So in that way, we still see that that's actually how it's still done today. It's it's that one little moment of instinct, that one little niggling doubt that, that can often unravel a case. Yeah, definitely. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to leave the light and journey through the lonesome roads of rural Vermont back in 1874 with the murder of a local school teacher named Marietta Ball. Marietta Ball was a pretty 20-year-old school teacher who had recently started teaching classes at French Hill within St. Albans, Vermont. Marietta was described as kind-hearted, thin, very intelligent and tall. She also had blue eyes with light brown hair. Marietta was considered a spinster as she was unmarried and already 20 years old. And just remember, nerdlings, this was in the 1800s, so it was a very different world to have it is now. In the weeks leading up to Marietta's death, St. Albans had been experiencing a slew of crimes, from burglaries to assaults on a local physician that had also been unsolved. On the day of July 24, 1874, Marietta had just finished up teaching her last class of that day, and it was a Friday and her weekend had just begun. Marietta had set up a board with a neighboring farm family whose name was the Abels. But on the weekends, Marietta would go and stay with the Page family, whose house was at the very end of French Hill Road, towards the junction of Route 36. This is a very wooded stretch and is very rural. And this area is actually a known hiking area nowadays, and it's still pretty wooded, so I imagine it was even more so back then. So Marietta always walked to the end of that road, which was about a mile away from the school. And the day of July 24th was no different. She finished up her class, gathered her belongings, and began her trek towards her destination of the Page family home. Just a few hours later, the Page family had become concerned when Marietta had yet to arrive. It was a full evening, and they had yet to see Marietta come through their door, as she always did on Fridays. Mrs. Page, growing more and more concerned as the evening wore on, walked up to a nearby neighbor's house to see if they had spotted Marietta at all that evening. It soon became very evident that Marietta was missing, and so a local search party was organized in hopes of finding the then-missing Miss Marietta Ball. That evening, as searchers scoured the woods for the missing Marietta, several members of the search party discovered what looked to be an ambush site along the woods in a nearby hollow. In that ambush site, they discovered what looked to have been a makeshift mask made from torn carpeting. And not long after the discovery of the makeshift mask, an African-American man by the name of Frank Harris, who worked for Mr. Page, shouted out that he had found a body. It was at this time that the remains of Marietta Ball were found. She looked to have been sexually violated and her head had been crushed by a large stone. From the scene of the crime, it looked like Marietta had put up a valiant fight for her life and unfortunately lost. Investigators believed that the perpetrator had sat in the ambush site patiently waiting for Marietta as she walked down the road. As she drew near, the killer sprang from the ambush site and dragged her into the nearby woods. Marietta's body was brought in and an autopsy was conducted by St. Albans physician Dr. Fassett and visiting physician Dr. Janeway. It was during this autopsy that the facts of what had happened to Marietta began to appear. Her skirt had been pulled over her head in an effort to hide the gruesome facts of her death. Her assailant had brutally beaten her body and then crushed her skull with a rock. And the assailant had also repositioned her limbs after her death in order to try and deceive those who had discovered her body. 
It was reported in the local newspaper that, quote, her head was mangled as if it was beaten with stones, and the evidence of outrage to her person was unmistakable, unquote. Almost immediately after discovering Marietta Ball's body, the town of St. Albans put out a reward for her killer for $3,000. And in 1874, this was an astronomical amount of money. One of the things that I found really sad about this is that Marietta Ball, she was just going about her day. She was a teacher. She was looking forward to her weekend, looking forward to just getting out, enjoying her her time, going to to the family that she boarded with's house. And just, you know, she'd had a busy week, I'm sure. Teaching kids is not an easy thing. And it's just tragic that literally she's attacked while she's walking up French Hill. That instance really shook the community of St. Albans right down to its core. The town was screaming for blood and, of course, for vengeance over the murder of Marietta Ball. And in their fear, unfortunately, the gentleman Frank Harris who we referred to earlier in the case, the Page's African-American employee, he was actually arrested in regards to the murder for Marietta Ball. So what happened was is the community members in St. Albans, they accused him of the murder of Marietta when a neighbor by the name of Mrs. Drinkwine became convinced that the torn carpet that had been used as that mask belonged to the house that she had been currently renting out to Mr. Frank Harris. Police took Frank Harris into custody two days after the murder of Marietta Ball. Mrs. Drinkwine's son luckily became the voice of reason throughout all of this. And thankfully, he convinced her that she shouldn't be making these types of accusations against anyone unless she had actual evidence of that person committing a crime. So with that, Mrs. Drinkwine actually dropped her accusations against Mr. Frank Harris. Thankfully, Harris was then released from custody as the police had nothing to hold him to regarding the crime. Mr. Frank Harris had done nothing wrong. He actually had helped aid the search party for finding Marietta. He was one of the ones that helped or that actually found her body. And here he is finding himself being accused of murder, which at this time in the 1870s, that would have come with a death sentence. We're talking about hangings here. Yeah, this reminds me of the Emmett Till case. Unfortunately, Emmett Till did actually die. But um, for the crime. Yeah. Yeah, this. This reminds me of that exact scenario. You know, like I said, this is the 1870s. So Frank would not have been getting an an easy out. And we're not in a good territory when it comes to to African-American equality rights at this point in time. So now on July 27th, yet another search party is organized. And this is in an effort to try and attain more evidence from the crime scene in order to try and apprehend the killer, which is really interesting because back then they would get the whole community involved in searching a crime scene. Obviously, now we know that is the worst thing you could do. You are literally contaminating crime scene when you do that. Just kind of an interesting difference right there between the times. But the search party ended up combing the woods near where Marietta's body had been found. And searchers were able to find a ribbon that had been tied to Marietta's hair and her broken watch, which was smashed and happened to be stuck on the time of 420, which is her assumed time of death. Finally, after much scanning of the crime scene, searchers were able to find the proposed murder weapon, which was in fact a very, very large rock that had dried blood coated onto its surface. As the searchers looked for evidence of the monster who had taken the life of an innocent woman, Marietta Ball's family was burying their beloved daughter. As little to no evidence of the killer turned up, more suspects were accused of the vicious and cruel murder of Marietta Ball. 
One suspect was a French-Canadian student by the name of Revoir. Revoir was considered a suspect as he had actually had a confrontation with Marietta and had in fact been removed from the school due to the conflict. There was no evidence linking Revoir to the crime, however, and he was soon released from custody as well. Accusations began to fly as time went on and fear overtook the small New England town. Outsiders were often looked at with suspicion during the search for Marietta's killer, and that led to a lot of innocent men who were minorities, folks who were down on their luck and happened to be in a lower income pocket. Also, traveling homeless people being the ones who were most often the latest suspects in the crime against Marietta. So rumors were beginning to fly with witnesses now starting to come forward with some unfounded accusations against made-up villains. Mrs. Page, for example, remembered that she had seen a strange unknown man hanging around the school a week before the murder took place. Another example was when an Irish immigrant, this is a time when being Irish was also looked down upon, who was an engineer from the Vermont Central Railroad was accused of the murder and then later released when yet again no evidence was present to link him to the crime. Now that the town was fully in the grips of its fear, panic, and xenophobia, the townsfolk began to accuse more well-to-do members of their very own town of being associated with this crime. One young man who was accused of the crime was actually the son of a former state senator. The young man in question was George Gregory Smith, who was son of J. Gregory Smith, Like I said, he was a well-respected politician and businessman. Rumors flew that George had been involved with the murder. Again, no actual evidence existed of him having anything to do with this crime. Smith was so infuriated with the rumors and suspicions that it was actually said that he called for a public hearing, which you could do back then, which was about one year after the murder, and he demanded the clearing of his own name. Witness after witness was called, and it was soon proven that Smith was not the murderer of Marietta Ball. And during all of the accusations and downright racism that was occurring, the actual assailant and killer was fleeing to another state. Yeah, this case is just littered with Mm. racism and pointing fingers. And I mean, another thing to relate this back to is the Salem witch trials. That's Um, exactly what I thought of. This reminded me of that. Yeah, someone was different. So all the richer folk would point fingers mm-hmm. and all of them would gossip. And it was the gossiping that like made this somehow true. Yeah. And many poor women were, were, were brutally to- murdered. Oh, absolutely. And a couple men as well. And here we have a similar situation. This is very common. I mean, honestly, we could say it still happens. You get that mass hysteria when people are at their like breaking point. Accusations fly. People start making up things. And, and it's not intentional. I really don't think they're coming from a bad place. But I think what happens is in their zealousness to like solve it, they start to imagine scenarios that maybe didn't happen. And that becomes, they tell themselves that so much, it becomes real to them. And I do think that was a very, very big piece of this was a lot of hearsay and a lot of lot of finger pointing. And I think people were using it as a way to kind of like iron out some personal grievances that they had with maybe with somebody, maybe, you know, they didn't like them, then well, next suspect in this killing. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's the scary part when you get a lot of people together Mm. that don't like one person. Um, Right. Mass hysteria, you get that, that almost cult mentality that happens too. that mob mentality. It gets, it can get real scary if you're the one who's the, uh, 
target of their their fascination that time too. Yep, definitely. It's it's a scary thing. For sure. And so getting back into the case, um, while George Smith is desperately trying to clear his good name, another man who formerly lived in St. Albans quietly leaves his family and home and escapes to a nearby state called New Hampshire. That monster was a man named Joseph LePage. LePage had been considered to be a, quote, unsavory type of character. He was born about 50 miles northwest of Montreal, and he was a man in his 40s and was the son of a fairly respectable French farmer. LePage went on to marry a woman who was about three years older than him when he was 20 years old, and they had five children together. Due to his nasty reputation, LePage had ended up moving around quite a bit whenever he would come under suspicion. It was said that he abused his wife and nearly killed his sister-in-law, who actually went on to testify against him at his trial. LePage was actually arrested for the attack on his sister-in-law, but when he was being detained, he attacked the cop, knocking him down, and he escaped. In 1871, LePage moved himself and his family from Canada to the town of St. Albans, Vermont. While the town was busy accusing everyone else of the murder, police had become very suspicious of LePage during their investigations. They just hadn't been able to hold him due to lack of evidence. It turned out that LePage lived roughly half a mile away from the schoolhouse that Marietta had worked at. And authorities had been watching LePage heavily, but with no evidence to tie him to the crime, they just weren't able to charge him. After a few months, LePage left Vermont one evening, leaving his family behind to go to Suncook, New Hampshire. A few months later, his family joined him in New Hampshire. And it wasn't until another young woman in a neighboring New Hampshire town was murdered that LePage's name jumped from a person of interest to a full-blown primary suspect. On October 14th of 1875, a little over a year since the murder of Marietta Ball occurred, the body of Josie Langmaid of Suncook, New Hampshire was discovered, and it was evident that Josie Langmaid's murder was suspiciously similar in nature to that of Marietta Balls. A detective investigating the New Hampshire Josie Langmaid murder began to fit the puzzle pieces together. He had heard of the case of Marietta Ball and had recognized the similarities within both women's murders. And it was at this point that he began to dig deeper and was able to link one man to being in the vicinity of both murders. Joseph LePage was that man. He discovered that LePage had lived in both St. Albans, Vermont, and Suncook, New Hampshire. And while living in New Hampshire, LePage had grown a reputation for chasing young girls and was considered to be a, quote, wandering crazy person by the townspeople. Police now finally, after all this time, had a legitimate lead on a primary suspect. They immediately arrested LePage and searched his home. After his arrest, LePage was searched and police found blood residue on the vest he was wearing. He also wore a pair of overalls underneath his pants, which is not so weird as it's wintertime in the north and he just may have been wearing two pants to stay warm. So it's not, yeah. not too weird. Fair enough. Yeah. They found that even through the physical search and questions, LePage was indifferent in his demeanor. While police interrogated LePage, he removed a knife from his pocket and handed it over to police. And this knife was about four to five inches long and looked to have been recently scoured. But the edge of the knife wasn't super sharp, and it was probably enough to scare two young women, though seeing as both were bludgeoned. He likely used the knife to grab the woman, but it wasn't necessarily the murder weapon. After his arrest, police searched LePage's background further 
And Detective Sargent was quoted in the Rutland Daily Globe as saying, quote, he thought the evidences against LePage were stronger than against anyone else, unquote. It was found that LePage had been in the immediate vicinity of the woods where Josie Langmaid had been found murdered in the same way as Marietta Ball. LePage also lived only a half mile from Marietta Ball's school and close to where she was murdered. LePage had originated from Quebec, but left after the attack on his sister-in-law, where she accused him of raping her and trying to kill her. Absolute trash human. Uh, yeah. Total trash human. That's awful. LePage had also attacked and raped a cousin of his. LePage also attempted to attack his own daughter, but his wife intervened. Yep. Trash human. God. Yeah, he's a monster. During the trial for the murders of Marietta Ball of Vermont and Josie Langmaid of New Hampshire, there was a lot of back and forth regarding how much of LePage's past prosecutors could use against him. This man had a full-blown history of being a serial rapist and had officially escalated into a full-blown serial killer. On January 13, 1876, Joseph LePage was convicted of murder and sentenced to hang in Concord, New Hampshire. On March 15, 1876, Joseph LePage was hung. It was said that he professed his innocence up until the last hour, and then at the time he confessed to both murders of Marietta and Josie Langmaid. It is said that after his confession, the monster that was Joseph LePage seemed somewhat relieved to have unburdened himself. Must be nice. Yeah. Awful, awful person. Yeah. Trash human. He was hung that day on March 15th for the murders of Marietta Ball and Josie Langmaid. There has always been some questions surrounding the guilt of Joseph LePage, and some folks think he may have been convenient as he lived in both areas, and he was known to be an unsavory type. He was also an outsider, and as we saw earlier in the case, that didn't work out well for many of the folks who came under suspicion for this crime. While I agree that earlier on in this case, a lot of people came under investigation that shouldn't have. I actually think the pol- the police were not the ones doing it. They were just kind of following the leads as people would accuse, you know, sussing it out and then releasing people. So they were pretty good on this. They weren't really the ones. In this instance, I actually think it was more the townspeople who were doing it. But when it came to LePage, they actually always suspected him. So I personally, I just think it's way too convenient that he was in both both states. Both girls were young. Both girls were murdered very similarly. The man had a very, very strong history of, of violence against women. So... I don't know. I, I I personally think it was him, but that's my opinion. I don't know what you think, Ash. I mean, we're normally always on the same side when it comes to cases. Yeah. Um, and again, with this case, I also do believe it was Joseph LePage being in the same areas for one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what Josie Langmaid did for a job, but... No, I couldn't find what she had a, done for a job. Yeah, but I mean, Marietta Ball, she was taking the same route every day. Yeah. And he had obviously watched her. And and the way that that site was set up, which is, I agree, this definitely was an escalating serial killer situation because he he set up an attack situation. What was interesting to me is that one of the things in this that I found very similar to a more recent serial killer was in the fact that like this person kind of almost had like a a kill area set up, like they had their mask. It was almost like a kill kit. To me, that behavior seemed very similar to Israel Keys. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely tell that he was watching her because he set something Mm -hmm. up. And that was also kind of Israel Keys. I know in a couple of his of his killings, he did kind of set out and watch the people for a couple hours before he did it. Yep. 
And so th- there were some similarities to this one and and Israel Keys. I'd never actually heard of Joseph LePage up until I was doing some digging because I was actually I think it was when we were doing our Connecticut River episode. I, I'd come across his name, so I I kind of filed it away for a future future date that I wanted to look into this one more. He actually would predate Jack the Ripper, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Jack the Ripper was. 1888, I believe, is when those happened around that time. So Joseph LePage would actually predate. So we do know there were earlier serial killers. They weren't often detected. They're hard to detect now. So I think there's something like always consistently like 50 to 100 active serial killers just in the United States alone every year. I'm not surprised that that serial killers existed back then. They just... It was a it was a very different era. Communication wasn't as easy to 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 get across state lines and things like that. The fact that that these detectives were able to do so and link the case of New Hampshire with Vermont is really impressive, honestly. Yeah, I mean, looking back, the term serial killer wasn't really coined until I, I think it was the seventies. Um, it was yeah, it was much more recent in history. It wasn't originally the term used. I don't even think it was used back with Jack the Ripper. Yeah, so I mean, I don't even know if you call it authorities or whoever was in charge, the police. I don't even know if the police were really They existed, but it was not to the level that we see today. Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure they thought of a different way to think about serial killers. I I bet you it didn't even cross anybody's minds. Mm, that's what would do multiple murders. Yeah, and right. I mean, they're very lucky they caught this guy early because I bet you he would have just went through the East Coast just well, anytime he yeah. felt like he needed to move or got suspected, he'd move. Yeah, and he was 40 years old. So the honest answer is, is that this was a long time ago. Who knows how many other victims there were? He just got caught for these two. And with that, nerdlings, we conclude the murder of Marietta Ball at the hands of St. Albans serial killer, Joseph LePage back in 1874. We just wanted to say thanks to all of the amazing historical societies that exist across this nation. It's important for history to have these documents and tales preserved, so we give our deep thanks and gratitude as we utilize a ton of these documents and old newspaper clippings in our research, as I'm sure many, many folks in podcasting or just blogging do. So one thing I wanted to say is if you happen to find yourself looking to give back to your community, I know it's a little hard right now, but if you do, donate to your local libraries and your local historical societies. They're all publicly funded, so this really helps them out, and it will help maintain all of these historical records for these types of cases going forward so that we don't forget about people like Marietta Ball or Josie or the fact that there was an awful monster named Joseph LePage back in 1874. And so with that, nerdlings, we conclude the murder of Marietta Ball. And if you liked this episode or any of our others, please hit that subscribe button. And feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at CrimeTimeNerds or check out our case notes at CrimeTimeNerds.com where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is at CrimeTimeNerds and an email you can reach us at, which is CrimeTimeNerds at gmail.com. We will catch you next time, you crime-loving nerdlings. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. 
This has been the jury room. <laughs>